The Enviro Show with Nancy Richards. It's the Enviro Show it is, and I am Nancy Richards, together with Lance Andrews and Kim Winter here in Cape Town, and with you for this uh, next green hour, so I hope you're going to stay with us. So, what have we got? Well, first up, determined to see the end of canned lion hunting is a gentleman by the name of Ian Mickler, who recently went down under to spread the word. Then in our forage feature, we're going to be talking about managing a Holstein herd and a little bit about milk. And if you haven't heard about the giant flag, which is eventually to be made out of cacti and succulents, we'll do stay tuned because we're going to give you a rundown from the guy who dreamt it up. Our BioBullet feature today takes a look at the issue of milk and, and just to give you a bit of a heads up on a documentary which will be coming up this Sunday on SFM Literature on the Jeffreys Bay Wind Farm, we'll be hearing what wind farmers should do when the wind doesn't blow. So we're going to move right along, starting off with Ian Mickler, who's recently returned from Australia, where he was very busy uh, doing his very best to educate them down there about canned lion hunting and the evils therein. Well, we spoke to him soon after he came back to find out first who he was. Primarily, I run a inbound safari operation, and we take um, clients mostly from America to 15 countries across Africa. So that's been my primary work, in this, uh, and that's in the safari industry for the last 25 years or so. But I've also been an environmental journalist um, for most of that period as well, and writing for a number of local and international publications. And um, one of the issues that I have been focusing on for many, many years is this issue of trophy hunting. And I used to live in the Okavango Delta in Botswana. I lived there for 14 years, and that's where I was introduced to the whole notion of trophy hunting as a, as a management tool for conservation. And, of course, when I started investigating the irregularities within the trophy hunting industry there... That led me to South Africa. And that was fairly soon after what is known as the Cook Report came out. And that was the first time that anyone had exposed to the world the horrors of people shooting lions in cages for fun. Um, and that was 1997. And um, it was a British investigative program. And anyway, my research on, as a journalist on the wider hunting industry led me to South Africa and canned hunting industry and all these breeding facilities. And so I've been involved literally now for oh, 15, 16 years mm. and um, have written extensively on these practices and was involved in presenting an in-depth study when Mr. von Skalkbeck back in 2005 tried to clamp down on these practices. And, you know, I've done many presentations, interviews around the world on these issues. So I have a, I guess, a long but horrid, uh, torrid um, relationship with these practices. Mm, and you've seen it through, through many different prisms. I mean, particularly as a photographer, I think you've, uh, as you say, you've written many books and photographed many animals. So you've seen it from all yes. angles. So I want to come back to that line that you said earlier, trophy hunting as a management tool for conservation. What's your feeling on that now? Well, yeah, okay, so let's, I mean, let's be very clear here that we have to distinguish between um, what is generally referred to as fair chase hunting, and that takes place on, you know, extensive ecosystems, um, usually in nationally protected areas, versus what we refer to as can hunting or what the hunters themselves in this country like to try and bluff us or, or call it a different name, they call it captive hunting, 
but in essence it's the same thing where animals are being bred specifically to be moved onto confined areas to be shot. So, um, so right from the set go, no, I'm, I'm absolutely 100% opposed to the breeding farms in this country and this notion that it's okay that people come and kill these animals in confined areas for trophies or for, for, for fun. Um, but I'm also, in, in the big picture, um, opposed to trophy hunting as a land use option generally. I think there are specific instances where what I would prefer to call culling, where you've got an ecologist or a scientist who's making those types of decisions, um, who's saying, okay, we need to, to reduce numbers for very specific reasons. But the notion that we can conserve or, or manage uh, tracts of, of wildlife area um, best by offering them to the hunters, I think, to me, is, a, is an old-school paradigm, and that generally now the science, the economics, and the impacts are showing us that we have better ways of doing that management. And if there is a better way, for example, uh, sustainable ecotourism or, or photographic tourism, then in the long run, for me, that's a far more uh, sustainable way of doing it. Mm. Isn't the problem, though, that ecotourism, you know, soft, soft things like ecotourism, if it's indeed it's soft, but um, gentler ways, is not going to bring in the same amount of money as trophy hunters who were paying many thousands of dollars to do what they were doing? Well, I think, OK, so that's, that's a huge misnomer. Um, I, this notion that trophy hunting brings in huge amounts of money, it just gets perpetrated by the industry themselves. Mm. Yes, there is a cash flow, of course. Um, they generate money. A lot of the money for the trophy hunting industry, first of all, is taken outside of the respective countries. So you book your hunt in Europe or in the USA. A lot of that money actually stays there. Um, but secondly, um, trophy hunting in, in, in nationally protected areas, I'm not talking about the canned hunting in South Africa on private farms, I'm talking about in nationally protected areas, generally only has a six-month season. So it's half period of time that a, a fully-fledged ecotourism operation is. Secondly, um, these hunting operations are small by comparison, so you might have one, at most, two hunters that are entering the facility, um, So, and the staff complements are really tiny in comparison. Um, and so when you look at all the, the, the issues involved and all the knock-on effects and the so-called trickle-down the photographic sector or the non-consumptive sector is a significantly greater contributor to economies in general. The other thing that is important is that the trophy hunting industry is not really a career option. I mean, you're either the professional hunter or you work in the camp. That's it. Um, you know, these, these photographic operations, these big lodges offer far better long-term career prospects, for example, to, to um, people who want to get involved in tourism. So, no, I would argue very clearly that um, quite the contrary, that um, the, the, the economic contributions that hunting makes across Africa is insignificant or relatively small compared to the wider photographic industry. Just coming back to what you've recently achieved, um, you've recently come back from a, a meeting with the Australian Environment Minister. Now, one sort of imagines trophy hunters to be uh, big burly Americans, and I suppose just as we think of rhino in terms of Vietnam and China, we tend to sort of think of trophy hunters as coming from Germany and America. And yet you've 
visited the Australian Environment uh, Minister uh, regarding a ban on the importation of lion trophies from South Africa. The Australians, are they they big on trophy hunting? Okay, so... um yeah, so my, my visit to Australia and, and in the months prior to that, I was actually in Europe um, on, on similar, for, for similar reasons. But um, to Australia, for, for a number of reasons. One, yes, they are involved. So, for example, between 2010 and this year, 144 lion trophies and or parts, being heads and skins or whatever, were imported into that country. Now, that's not a... A high percentage when you compare it to the Americans, who do make up more than 50% of mm. the um, hunters that come to South Africa. But Australia is involved, so they, they are coming here to hunt. But secondly, there's another part here which is important, and that is that a lot of the volunteers that are lured to come onto these petting farms that South Africa has, these breeding facilities, do come from Australia. They also come from Europe and North America, but Australia, there's a lot of them that come from, from that country. So to give you an example, in, in Melbourne, I gave a public presentation, 120 people pitched. Of those, four people in that audience had been on these facilities, paid significant sums of money to, to go and volunteer, and the belief that they were contributing to a legitimate conservation project. Um, they named the properties that they were on, and I could tell them quite clearly that um, these properties had nothing to do with conservation. They weren't sanctuaries. They are, in fact, nothing more than breeding facilities, and they're making huge amounts of money. So the Australians are linked in that respect. Um, And I guess if you're going to try and use that strategy of banning the trophies, pull the, the rug from under the financial model, then Australia's as good as place as any, and they were very receptive to the message. So it doesn't mean that we're going to stop there. I mean, Europe, US, all, all the civilized, so-called civilized countries of the world. Um, it's also important to note that you can't have this discussion with the breeders and the hunters in this country. They are not prepared to enter the discussion quite simply because they're making too much money, and our government is just shown themselves to be pretty much unconcerned, disinterested, and there's a cash flow there for them as well. So um, they have made a statement in July this year that um, it's beyond the the protection of, of, I mean, uh, these activities play no impact on our wildland populations, therefore they're they're not concerned about getting involved. So um, we've taken the, the issue to the international audience because they are linked, and as I make the point, we're growing the, the, the dope, they're smoking it. We're breeding the lions, they're coming to shoot them. So they're involved. I'm just wondering where your allies are here in South Africa. I, I mean, I hear what you say about there perhaps not being any government will, but we have to be careful about not damning everybody. Who are the allies? We, you know, we're a country well known for our conservation methods. Um, yes, yes, we, we are. But I would, I would say that... Um, a lot of these practices are starting to shame um, a lot of what we've done. And they also shame our attempts to market South Africa as a responsible tourism destination. Um, so the wider tourism industry in this country, for example, has to now start realizing what's, what's at play here. Um, and we've got to ask the question, in this day and age, with what we know about the impacts we have on this planet, with what we know about these creatures and our relationship to them, is it acceptable 
that we hold between six and 8,000 predators, wild-at-heart species, hey? an apex predator, in cages, confine them to awful conditions, and let others then come and shoot them for fun. So that's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very strong philosophical question we have to ask. Uh, so, but it's based also on good science, good research, um, and we know there's no conservation value to what these, these breeders are doing, none whatsoever. So who are our allies? In that light, pretty much anyone who then sits down and considers the facts. And if you can, can, can justify this type of behavior, then obviously you're not an ally. But I would certainly believe that anyone in their right mind who sits down and considers it and understands what's taking place would have to then say, you know what? It's not acceptable in this day and age. And that's what the Minister of, of uh, the Environment in Australia said. He was absolutely horrified. Everyone is horrified when you show them footage, when, you, when they get to understand what's taking place. Um, and he said, this is just simply not 21st century, and, and this is not going to happen on my watch. Mm. You know? So, um, yeah. Um, the, I'd, I'd like to also mention that the Professional Hunters Association, they could be the biggest agent for change. But... Barring, and this is important, there are a few ethical professional hunters who are standing up against these practices. That group of them is actually growing. It is growing, but they are in the minority. And the, the Professional Hunters Association are not prepared to listen to, to, to their voices. And it's, for me, it's quite simply, it's down to the money. There's so much money to be made. You know, these animals are, are being shot for, on average, probably twenty twenty five thousand dollars $25,000 a hit. Um, but some of them are going for over forty, forty-five thousand dollars a lion, um, and you know, last year alone, over seven hundred of these lions were shot um, in in these type of hunts. Um, and of course, the petting facilities are making significant mm-hmm. sums of money. Some of these properties have got twenty, thirty volunteers at a time. These volunteers are all paying anything upwards of eight hundred, a thousand US dollars a week to come and work here. And they believe they're contributing to conservation causes. Now, I don't know of a single line ecologist, I've yet to find one, who will stand up and say, yeah, this, this is actually a good conservation cause. They will all tell you that humanly bred or uh, human imprinted lions, genetically contaminated lions have no conservation value whatsoever. They'll also tell you that South Africa actually does not have any more space to, to place lions. Okay? So... This country and our lion ecologists and conservation are not looking to create new founder populations of lions. Um, we have lions already in most of the areas that can, in fact, all the areas that can take lions. And Nancy, he has, an, he has another rub to these issues, is that the pretense that this is conservation, what it does is it misdirects the priorities and it misdirects conservation funding. So people are putting money into... To, into sham projects when, in fact, that money could be going for the real issues. Lions are under threat because of habitat loss and loss of prey base. You know, I think your allies should be, our allies are everyone and anyone who actually considers what this is all about. And once people get to understand and have seen what is going on, then most people reject out, out, outright what's going on. In a nutshell, if it's possible, solution? Well, the, the, yeah, so one of the big problems is, of course, let's assume that we are able to have some impact on the industry. 
we then have to deal with well, what do we do with six to eight thousand predators? You know, do you euthanize them? Do you buy up land to to for them to see out the rest of their lives? You know, when I started investigating, there were probably no more eight hundred and no more than eight hundred to a thousand predators. When I did the the report for the minister in two thousand five two thousand six, as one of the you know concerned parties, I was funded by a big NGO. There were probably about three to three and a half thousand predators. There's now between six and eight thousand predators. So if we don't stop it now, it's going to grow. There will be twelve, fifteen thousand of these predators in cages. So I would rather deal with the industry being closed down now and then how to deal with all these animals than sit with the problem in ten years from now. Um, so yes, the idea is if you ban the trophy being imported or being brought out of South Africa you'll find very quickly that the economic model is not there for these guys and that, in fact, the real reason they're coming to shoot them is for the trophy, but not for conservation reasons. And I think it's a kind of demand reduction in a way. So you, you're reducing demand for these predators, and then hopefully they'll close down the farms, they'll close down the breeding facilities. And then we have to deal with the predators that we have because they are useless for conservation purposes. None of them can be used. But hopefully we can find strategies and policies that will allow most of them to see out their lives. A lot of them are so badly genetically contaminated that any self-respecting vet would want to see them euthanized anyway. I mean, we've seen some, I've seen some appalling states that these animals are in, you know. So it's, it's, the solutions are not going to be easy either. It's also going to be a difficult challenge. But I think it has to be tackled because it's going to get worse. You've seen the Australian Environment Minister, you've seen our ministers. What about the American Minister of Environment? No, we'll get there. Europe, Europe is next. I, am, I, have, an, I have a USA trip uh, planned. I've, I, have, I have people there already that are working. And the Americans, are, in some ways, are ahead of the game because they're trying to, to have lions upgraded to Appendix 1, which gives them a greater protection status, which means that the exportation of trophies becomes that much more difficult and complicated. So that's one of the ways that we're doing it as well, is we're looking to have lines upgraded. But you know what, Nancy, what the fascinating thing is, is that the, peop the lobby that is strongest um, against having lines offered greater protection, it's the trophy hunting lobby. Because they know if it's upgraded to Appendix 1, it means their trophies are that much more difficult to export, and they don't want that. So they're trying to tell the world and the politicians that actually lions are, not in, need, are not, not in need of greater protection. But we'll get to the USA. Absolutely, we will. Well, there you go. That was Ian Mickler telling it like it is. And uh, if you'd like to find out a little bit more about him, you can see uh, check our Facebook page. We put a link up to his website, Ian Mickler. And it's certainly something to think about, isn't it? Genetically contaminated. What a terrible thought. You're listening to The Enviro Show here on SAFM. Well, next up in our forage features, animals who are probably the reverse of genetically contaminated, certainly animals who are way less threatened than, uh, than canned lions, are cows, or more precisely, Holsteins. Well, these fine creatures or samples of these fine creatures are going to be at the Agri Expo, which is a sort of a marketing event for the agriculture industry here in the Western Cape. It's coming up between the 6th and the 8th of November at Sandringham near Stellenbosch, so if you've got kiddies who would like to go along and see the cows and the sheep and us, then uh, that's probably the place to go. So what's to know about a Holstein herd? Well, on the manager we have, on the line we had the manager at De Grendel Historic Farm, which is just itself outside of Cape Town. He's Rob Slater. Hi, Rob. Good evening, Nancy. Nice to have you with us. Thank you very much. 
I don't yeah. know if you, I don't know if you were listening to our earlier guest, but he was talking about candlelion hunting and this yeah. distressing situation of this, some of these animals being so genetically contaminated. And I was just thinking to myself that your Holstein herd are the complete reverse. I think they're a very special and specialised and carefully cherished collection of cattle. Yeah. T- tell us about what is it Holstein exactly? Explain the specifics of a Holstein. Well, the the Holstein is the is the black and white uh, dairy cow that you often see, you know, driving driving along the farm roads. You'll see them next to the road. Um, it is the largest of the dairy breeds, and they also produce the most milk of the dairy breeds. And um, in the world population, you'll probably find that the Holsteins uh, are the most of all the other dairy. I mean, there are more numbers of Holsteins in the world than other dairy cows as well. Okay. So they really they, they sort of dominate dominate all uh, areas of of dairying. So mostly, are they for dairy? Yes. No, they they're strictly for dairy. Okay. Um, in the old days, you know, they were developed from the old Friesland cow. The Friesland cow was a more dual purpose animal, mm. uh, beef and dairy. But the Holsteins have been sort of bred more towards a dairy cow. Okay. So you your herd is how big? We are presently milking about 180 cows. Okay. Um, so if the total herd size will be double that with uh, the, the young the young stock and also the dry cows. Now I think one of the things of, about your herd is that they, you are they you know they as I was saying they're genetically far from being con- contaminated. They are the very best of breed, as it were, um, a, a breeding stock, in other words. Yes, no, uh, yeah, genetically as in uh, genes, um, not modified genetically, but. Uh, yeah. DNA breeding breeding stock here. Yeah, this is one of the stronger herds in the country. Um, in fact, uh, we do quite a bit of DNA testing, and they've, uh, there's a, a top hundred list um, of the best, the top hundred list of the best cows in South Africa, and in the states and Canada and you know certain countries. And um, we've got one of our young lasses on the farm. Uh, the Americans last year reckon she was the she had the best indexes outside of America. So we, we're certainly very proud of her. I love the way you refer to her as a lass. So obviously you feel pretty quite they, personal towards these creatures. Yeah, no, they've, they've, all, they've all got their own little uh, cuteness or uh, temperament. or you, know, you, 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 you seem to get to know the good, the bad and the ugly yeah. quite quickly. You're obviously the right man for this job, Rob. But mm. <laughs> what keeps, uh, you know, a Holstein cow or indeed any other sort, what keeps them healthy? Because there must be some, you know, the healthier they are, I'm assuming, that the better yeah. the milk they produce. Uh, what What is a way that, uh, to keep them in sort of mint condition? Yeah, well, we, we on the Western Cape uh, mostly feed our cows. Um, that in the, the Natal, in the Midlands and the Tissikama areas, you'll, you'll see the cows on grazing. Mm. Um, we don't have the the summer rainfall for grazing, and uh, you know to irrigate is, is virtually impossible with our water uh, scarcity. Yeah. So we feed the cows um, twice a day, and uh, the ration they get is is balanced by doctors and professors and so on. You know, people with know-how. So we make sure that they get all the vitamins, uh, energy, protein, everything that they need every day. Um, and of course, the, our cows walk around outside, enjoy the sunlight. They lie where they want to. They've got grass to lie on, fresh water. As long as they um, they get good uh, food for good nutrition and and enough exercise and sunlight, they they healthy. So these are five star cows, by the sounds of it. They're, they're luxury lovers. What what do you feed them? 
they get a mixture of, of, a, of a concentrate, which is mainly maize. Uh, they get straw, lucerne, um, and then we give them uh, citrus pulp. Cows absolutely love citrus. They'll, they'll eat a eat a bucky load of nachis. Um, mm. You know, it's like it's like pudding for them. Um, lemon peels, orange peels. You know, the, we get the juice and the peels, or the the pulp and the peels from the juice factories, and they absolutely love that. Um, and then we also do maize silage. Um, we're going to plant maize now uh, that we're going to harvest in in March next year. Mm. Um, so we put that into a silage pit and, and we feed it throughout the year for them and they absolutely love that as well. It sounds like they're certainly getting a very varied diet. I, 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 you know, on the principle of you are what you eat or you produce mm. what you eat, it, it does this very varied diet have a big impact on the quality of the milk that they're producing? Uh, yeah, I, I, would, I would suppose it did. Um, look, we, we, we try and get enough litres out of the cows to, to, to make it pay. Um, so you can you can you can feed a cow really hot hot ration and get fifty liters out of it, or you can feed her a mediocre ration and, and get twenty five liters. But both rations you can balance so that she eats a healthy meal. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it just depends what your what your plan is with, yeah. with the cow. Yeah. Well, presumably, uh, you know, seeing as they are breeding stock, you are feeding them the very best possible way that yes. you can and not, and not sort of milking the hell out of them, or if that's the right expression, I'm sure it's not. Yeah, um, I know. 50, 50 litres, is that an off the off the top of your head figure, or is that roughly a sort of a daily yield? or, or No, you'll find, you'll find the, the better herds averaging around 40 litres. Okay. Um, but your best cows will be doing anything up to... Oh, 60, 70 litres, your best cows. One of the things that we hear a lot about dairy is that, you know, and um, cows, generally speaking, is that they're full of hormones. Are, are yours hormone-free? I mean, how you know, what what is the sort of hormone situation in terms of milk and dairy? Yeah, the, look, the, the, the hormone that everybody refers to is, is uh, RBST. Now, now, BST is a natural hormone that occurs in the cow, mm-hmm. um, which is secreted for milk production. Um, so when people talk about RBST, I mean, there's, there's no way that you can test it in the milk. Um, yeah, I don't know. And Is it an issue? It's, it's, uh, nobody, nobody's ever tested it. Uh, well, nobody's ever um, maintained that it's got a health issue to uh, people, um, as far as I know. Um, so the yeah. jury's out on that one. What happens to your milk once it's uh, produced? Is it do you process it there on your own farm, or does it go else to elsewhere to a dairy to be processed, pasteurized, all those things? No, we we send we we milk it out, cool it down to four degrees, and then it's loaded up in a bulk tank and it goes to a, a milk factory. They process it and bottle it and send it out. And what's the what's the longevity of a cow? Are, are any cow really how long are they able to you know be in calf give you milk survive and what happens to them afterwards let's start with the first bit before we get to their demise yeah. how, how long are they productive well our, our oldest cow is 15 mm-hmm. um i would say that the average age would be around uh probably six or seven years mm-hmm. um they should they should give a calf every year. They calf for the first time at two years old, so um, you'd want a calf every year 
from two years old. And at what point are, are they no longer able to bear? At what time? At what point are they no longer going to give you good milk? Yeah, I think you know. In, in the in the old days, uh, you used to cull cows for for uh, health reasons. You know, mastitis, sore feet, uh, you know, various things like that. But but you know, they resulted from our, our Western Cape winters. I mean, they were very wet and, and cold winters. Um, nowadays, a lot of the traps have built uh, cow housing. Mm-hmm. Where the cows live a, a more protected life, and uh, sort of things like you know mastitis and injuries and that type of stuff have sort of gone out the window. So fertility has become a a big issue these days. Um, cows that don't conceive um, after you know four or five or six inseminations and, and normally have a foot in the a foot on the on the lorry. Um, yeah, so so the 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 end the end of a cow's life on the farm will, will result in a trip to the abattoir. Yeah, and and then that's it. And then yeah. what happens to them? Do they get processed into meat? Yeah, it's it's normally they normally go for C grades. So you you know they'll end up as, as sausage or or mince or you know something yeah. like that. I presume. Yeah, shame. All your young yeah. lasses eventually will become old ladies, and off they go onto the lorry, never yeah, to be sure. seen again. It's really quite sad, isn't it? But looking on the upside, um, well, two things before we get on to the Agri Expo, which I think is coming up on the sixth to the eighth. It's not this weekend; it's the following. Yes. Uh, I believe that De Grendel there is a very, um, it's a very green farm, a very carbon neutral farm. How does that work? In in as much as we would have been led to believe that cows release a whole lot of methane gas, which is not healthy at all. <laughs> How do you balance well, it? Yeah, well, uh, the, the farm the farm is is, uh, is is about around about 850 hectares, mm-hmm. and we've got a, a good section of it is uh, is on the Tigerberg Hill, and uh, it's the natural Ronostobos, and then we've got 120 hectares or so of vineyards, and uh, a whole bunch of, of trees and and greenery. So, um, you know, the, the carbon emission from the the vehicles, the animals, or and so on, I think is counteracted quite a bit by the by all the trees. A lot of you know the greenery that we do have on the yeah. farm. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they they did a whole test and a examination or whatever you call it, and yeah. and uh, the conclusion was that we are you know carbon negative. Carbon I think. Yeah, yeah. I believe carbon negative. I think is carbon what negative, you've been told. Yeah. Rob, you're going to be going along to the Agri Expo. Are you taking some of your lessons? Yes, I'm going to have about 14 there, I think. Hmm. Um, yeah, we, we, I, I, I have about probably 700 school kids that come through the farm every year. Um, normally sort of March, April when we've got lambs and, and so on as well. And, uh, you know, it's, it's always nice to, to show the kids how a cow works, uh, how the dairy works. And uh, this is just another opportunity for us to get out and for the city to come and visit us. Yeah. And uh, the guys coming from all over, and, and uh, you know, the, the city folks mustn't be scared of going to ask the people, you know, how it works and what's happening. I mean, they love, they love explaining and, and teaching and, and so on. So, so, you know, just showing the cars half the, half the deal there. The other half is, is you know, interacting with, with city people and kids, and there's even a little uh, youth show happening for the kids as well where they can actually parade with their effort and, 
mm. get, a, get the feel of a cow. Yeah, sure. Well, as long as the cows don't get too skittish. But it sounds, no. like, it sounds like a great opportunity, as you say, for children to sort of see the, the, the workings of a cow, as you put it, that it really does come from a cow and not uh, just arrive in a bottle yeah. or a plastic yeah. udder. Rob, thank you very much. Very best of luck. I think I'm going to, uh, it's agriexpo.co.za is the website if you'd like to find out a little bit more about that. If you're here in the Western Cape, it's happening at Sandringham. That's just quite near Stellenbosch. And it's uh, from the 6th to the 8th of November. Rob, very best of luck. Thank you very much and happy milking. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nancy. Take care. Agriexpo.co.za if you'd like to find out a little bit more. And if you find yourself anywhere near Platterclough, I think it is, um, De Grendel, it certainly is a fabulous place to go and visit as well. So moving on from cows and animals, while we have uh, what we're going to be hearing about in a minute, actually what we're going to be hearing about in a minute is a little bit about Jeffrey's Bay Wind Farm, which is very exciting. But before we get there, we're going to stay in the Eastern Cape because you may or may not have heard about the giant flag. Well, it's a very, very big idea. It's literally going to be covering a piece of land apparently the size of 66 soccer fields. And the quote that's in the release says that it's going to be an expression of zero carbon economy and made up of how heaven only knows how many cacti and succulent plants in different colours. Well, it hasn't happened yet because at first they have to grow the things and then they have to uh, fund it. Well, who behind this, uh, this great big piece of enormousness can be better to tell us all about it is Guy Lieberman, who's with FBC, who are busy supporting him on this whole ride. Hi, Guy. Hi. Nice to have you. you with us. Thank you very much. Now, this, you've not yet given birth to this brainchild of yours, but I think it's been some time in the coming, and it's still some time to come ahead. Just give us the rationale from the start. Okay, well, first of all, the, 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 the project, the giant flag, is a 66-hectare a South African flag, so that's the size of 66 uh, football fields, mm-hmm. um, and it's going to be made up of millions of coloured succulents and cacti, uh, in the colors of the flag, and the the black triangle will be a four megawatt solar field, uh, and one third of that solar field will be a, uh, a raised canopy, um, and a solar canopy, and underneath that canopy, uh, so that's a twenty two thousand square meter canopy, and underneath that will be a tourism precinct uh, with um, a small hotel or lodge and a conference venue and a hub for micro-enterprise and our warehousing and little restaurants and cafes and the parking all underneath um, the the solar. It's a mother and father of a great big idea. What were you thinking when you came up with this idea? What what was the purpose behind it, Guy? I mean, aside from bringing tourists into the Cam de Boo, which is quite a sort of um, an open area, what was the purpose? Well, um, there were, f- there were a few sort of like uh, reasons um, for it. Basically, this came out of the World Cup um, where I'm at, I'm at ad agency FCB. Mm, sorry, FCB, um, I called you FBC. Sorry. Yeah. No problem. Um, and FCB, uh, I, I, I work as the, I head up the Green and Social Mandate. And we realized at the agency that South Africans had really sort of fallen in love with the flag uh, during the World Cup. We'd never before experienced that kind of um, people, you know, putting it up on their homes and on their cars and on their places of work. So we initiated a campaign coming right out of the World Cup to kind of keep the spirits up. And the campaign was called Keep Flying. Mm. Keep your flags up, right? And that was 
to go for 40 days. 40 days. And through that campaign, we were really, I mean, the response was fantastic. And so the CEO called me in and he said, look, this is great, but it's fleeting. So come up with a big idea, a legacy project around the flag. And this is the idea that came out of that. And, and the idea honestly came as an epiphany. It was basically fully baked in that meeting. I said it's a flag that you can see from space uh, made up of uh, uh, plants that's growing and living. Hmm. So, uh, you know, from concept to completion or from what, what is it you called it from sort of garden to garden to gate or whatever, or, you know, you've got a lot, uh, you've got a long way to go yet because, oh, germination to gate. I mean, first you have to grow the plants. Yes, indeed. So so the last four years have, have seen a very, very detailed feasibility and development phase with um, the Development Bank getting behind it and Eastern Cape Development Corporation and all of the authorizations and details and financials, you know, being, you know, set into place. So to get us to the point where we could actually launch the concept and the activation globally. So we have the land, uh, you know, approved and all of our sort of the rezoning done and the and the lease and everything's in place. Um, and now, um, so we have we do have some funds committed, but the funds are conditional. So we have uh, the Green Fund have committed 10 million rand. Uh, Nedbank Foundation are exploring um, a seven and a half million rand uh, grant from them, which would be specifically for 30 local women working on the botanical components of the uh, of the flags um, training and salaries for five years. Um, the tourism ministry are, are seriously considering a very large um, investment of around 50 million into the plants and the precinct itself. Um, so there's a lot that, that you know, there's a lot of, of, of players that are coming on board in, in a serious way. Um, and so, but what we've decided to do is we've decided to go global with the crowdfunder. And the idea would be that once we've reached a, uh, our first threshold, we could start, no, we could germinate the plants, we could start in that, which is a massive undertaking, mm. two and a half million plants. And with that, uh, we know that once we've reached the threshold where we know that we can take the plants from germination all the way through to planting on the actual flag, that'll be about, um, so then we're looking at about a two-year period from, as you say, from germination to opening of the gates. Um, and in that time, the, the solar field and the, and the precinct uh, will happen much quicker than the than the than the plants. Yeah. The plants and most complex the, the, the most complex component is the botanical elements. Yes. Well, and who is your um, horticulturist? Because uh, presumably, if you're going to come up with the colours of the flag, these have got to be very specific. I mean, cacti. I'm thinking green, grey. You know, hmm. uh, you know, where are you going to get the red and the yellow and the blue? And these are going to be very specific plants. Who has designed your horticulturist uh, palette? Well, it's, it's quite a funny story. I mean, um, first of all, there's a few reasons why I craft on it. One is that you have the Kamdabur uh, National Park and this uh, Valley of Desolation. The Valley of Desolation, there's this beautiful outlook. It's a wonderful road to get up there, very easy, um, and it's way up high above the valley. So you look down over the site. So that was what I had in my mind when I came came up with the idea. The second thing that was really providential is that the, that the largest succulent nursery in Africa, the fifth largest in the world, is two kilometers from the site. So at Obisa Nursery, you have two things. You have the seed stock for the yellow, red, um, blue, 
and then the green is obviously spectrum, so that's mm-hmm. that's 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 pretty easy. It grows wild there. Um, you have the seed stocks of the so that actual DNA of those plants are habituated to the soil and climate of Crofnet. You have the capacity. You have a, a, a highly experienced grower and a strong team, um, and then we are just going to build up on that. We're going to really expand operations, and so they're going to be sort of like consulting to us and helping train um, all the sort of uh, plant planters and the, the workers on the botanical component. Um, and 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 so you and the plants are non-invasive, which is important. If they're not indigenous and they're non-invasive, um, they are water-wise, so the flag will not need to be yeah. irrigated they yeah. are water um and and they're again acclimatized to the to the soil and, and, and climate of it. yeah and, and the speck boom is a bit of a carbon muncher too isn't it so i mean the whole thing will be naturally do, doing a lot of good for everybody yeah the, the so we have three notifications in with the with the un um uh, the carbon credit system and uh, the, it's interesting that they divided into three one is the solar and the other are, are, all, are all the cacti, but the big one is is a spectrum. So that's about two hundred tons of carbon a year sequestrated. When I mean, are we all going to live long enough to see this? It seems like a very sort of well thought out, planned thing. That looking many years ahead. I mean, you're talking about a five year, you know, salaries for five years. But when do you think you say that the tourism bit will be open way before all the plants have taken hold or taken root sufficiently? But when do you think that we're going to be looking down on this from space and actually seeing the South African flag? Look, if all goes well, um, once the first thre- threshold of, of, of funding is in, which is, it's looking it's looking pretty good, um, it's two years until the gates open. So we'd, we would plant the cacti when they're uh, just a little bit smaller than a tennis ball. So um, we've got this really interesting um, uh, greenhouse technology that we've been looking at with the grower um, and some international partners that, that can really help um, sort of like speed the growth of the slowest growing plants. So it's not actually, uh, definitely, certainly within our lifetime. And what's interesting is that the, the, so the, the, the flag, the, the succulents will be planted into what we're going to have these large tracts of organically dyed hessian that's going to like hold mm. the soil and hold the plants and they're going to be in the colors of the flag. Oh, okay. So. So in the beginning, the, flag, the actual color will be very rich, and then they'll they'll be planted in. And then over the years, as they grow and the and the hessian decomposes, the flag, you know, will transform. Yeah. But the interesting thing is that year on year, the color will get richer. Yeah, oh, gosh, you really have thought of everything, probably including helicopter flips, so people can see it from above and actually get the full benefit. Just lastly, this solar field, the black triangle. The first commercial-scale solar field in the world to both harvest water as well as serve in part as canopy for the tourism precinct. Just explain that that black triangle. Look, uh, when you look at uh, um, a zero-carbon or even a low-carbon economy, you have to look at um, certain elements. Moving forward, um, you know, certain things like a roof or a solar panel, they need to serve as not only... Uh, generating power, not only creating shelter. Um, you have to start embedding uh, hybrid sort of like reasons for, the, for, for it. So, so in a sense, this is an example. This is a great opportunity to be an example for two things. One, for large solar, uh, especially if you're in an area where there is some rain, to harvest 
harvest the water because it's, I mean it's a perfect catchment area. So we're going to be doing that. I mean there is a rainfall there, so that's so there's there's a good excuse to harvest water there, and we're going to use it on the on the uh, in the precinct. Um, the other thing is, is is two things. One is a, is is a, like a gesture to industry to say, uh, you know, you have these massive roofs. Um, and uh, and really, those those roofs should be harvesting uh, uh, sunlight. Yeah. There's no excuse anymore. And um, and on the other side, the side of the solar industry, yes, wonderful. You're taking up these massive tracts of land um, to create energy, but you can do more than that. So this is a, a a small example of what's possible in all of these different sectors. Well, you're not the green and social mandated man at FCB for nothing, I would say there, Guy. Thank you very much. It sounds slightly ever so slightly above my head, but it's certainly fabulously interesting. The crowdfunding, I believe, is starting when? The crowdfunding started last Thursday. Okay. It's been a week. Um, it's on giantflag.co.za. That's right. And we put that link up. I think we put that link up on our Facebook page. If we haven't, I'm certainly going to do it any minute. Guy Lieberman, very best of luck. May you live long to see it bloom and flourish. Thank you for your time. Take care. Thank you. Cheers. Guy Lieberman, what a fabulous project. FCB doing their thing there. Guy Lieberman is, uh, is the green man behind it all. And if you'd like to find out a little bit more about the giant flag, check it out. Giantflag.co.za. Giantflag.co.za. Well, so whilst we have our headspace very firmly in the Eastern Cape, let me tell you about the Jeffreys Bay Wind Farm, or at least let me tell you about a documentary about the Jeffreys Bay Wind Farm that you'll be able to hear this Sunday on SFM Literature around about 2.30pm. It's going to be called Going With The Wind. Well, amongst the people who feature in it is the founder and CEO of Mainstream Renewable Power. He's Eddie O'Connor from Ireland, as you guessed, and he's been in the wind business for decades. And I asked of him, what happens if the wind doesn't blow? It's a variable source of supply. It's very cheap and it's non-polluting. You know, you know the pattern of, of wind. I mean, it's but you can't predict absolutely intimately what it's going to be. You know, like let's say a week from now, you have a very good idea of what it's going to be up to 12 hours from now. A really, really close correlation. You know that. And and 24 hours from now, you have a pretty good idea. And even two days away, you have a pretty good idea. But farther than that, it's not like you can't dial it like, like coal. You can't just switch on, put in more coal, get out more electricity. That's not possible. So how do you cope with that? Well, there's a whole lot of strategies you can adopt. It doesn't matter when, when the penetration of wind is low like it is here in South Africa. It's practically non-existent. And there's 45,000 megawatts installed. So it's, it's, it's not a worry at all until you get, till you get up around 10, well, 15,000 megawatts. And then you begin to think, well, what happens if the wind doesn't blow? But South Africa is gifted in its wind. The p- pattern of wind blowing actually follows the load, which is amazing. So generation has to be highest during the day because demand for electricity is highest during the day. And if you can imagine the storm that's over us now, like yesterday it was halfway between here and the ca- Cape Town, and then two days ago it was over Cape Town. So it was, you know, hammering away. Wind, if you had wind turbines in Cape Town, you know, a couple of days ago, you'd have been full output. Here today you're at full output. You know, so if you can if you can imagine a grid connecting all those, well, you've evened out that output. As this storm passes through, you collect it all the way along. So what you get is the average capacity factor. So I'm not concerned about that. I think you need three things. If you want to go to 100% renewables, as I say, at low per- penetrations, it really doesn't matter at all. You have to start paying for backup at a certain time. So the world has to have balancing, some way of balancing. The way, well, what you need your big grid, as I mentioned, so big grid and then battery storage. 
and it's interesting that California wants 1,300 megawatts of battery storage uh, by 2020. So if the wind wasn't, wasn't blowing at all over this area, you'd have charged up your batteries and you'd be letting them run down. And particularly for Africa, I don't think we'll see big grids built in Africa. I don't think big, big grids need to be built. With solar coming down in price and wind being what it is, I would offer electricity to a city in Africa with solar and, and battery storage and charge up the, the batteries when you've got full output, like maybe during the day with your solar, and then at night. You overbuild, you just build more megawatts than you can consume, and you, and you put that extra stuff into batteries. And then at night time, when people want lights and whatever bit of industrial stuff that's going around the clock, you do that. So batteries are, are a necessary part of this 100% renewable scenario. And the third one, then, is adjusting demand supply with smart meters. Now, you've heard about smart meters, and it's quite possible to do this. The modern utility is actually looking at and installing smart meters. There's a few here in South Africa. I was talking to, down to the ANC about this and, and, and to the NERSA, the uh, Timbani Bukula, and they have some smart meters. But if you had 100% smart meters, well then let's say the wind doesn't blow as you thought it would and the cloud came over the sun. This has been now on an all-national basis and you're never going to get cloud everywhere. It doesn't work like that. And you're never going to have no wind anywhere. But it might be lower than you had projected, the combination of wind and sun. So then the price would go up because demand would stay high. And so now you, you could have your meters preset so that you, you turn off all the freezers. Imagine if you turned off all the freezers in South Africa, what that would do to your load. Because you can turn off freezers without any loss of effect because of the insulation. They're highly insulated. And then say the, the price, say that there was less wind than, than you thought or less sun. Okay, so the next thing, turn off all the fridges. So me, me, maybe over... Six hours, the temperature might go up by a degree, but you haven't used the electricity. And then you, all along the way, you'll find that there's things that can get switched out sequentially to follow the load, and that's what smart meters will do. So if you've got those three components in place, you can contemplate, and the world has to contemplate this, a transition, a total transition to sustainability in the making of electricity. And that's within reach. Well, there you go. You can hear a little bit more of what Eddie O'Connor of Mainstream Renewable Power has to say about wind farming in Going With the Wind. That's a documentary on SOFM Literature this Sunday at 2.30. Well, finally, though, right here on the Enviro Show tonight, another In Our Bio Bullet series with Dr. Antoni Malevsky, who tonight talks about the issue of us drinking milk. Well, one of the funny things about the human species is that we are um, the only animal on the planet that continues to consume milk as adults. The Maasai people in East Africa are perhaps the, the epitome of this in the sense that they claim in, in anthropological interviews to have a diet exclusively of milk if they can help it. In other words, they keep cattle and they prefer to have nothing but milk um, and only resort to other foods if they really have to. And, and this has puzzled me for years as a biologist because milk is a, is a food designed for babies. And in this case, in the case of the Maasai, uh, baby cows, baby cattle, not us. And so there's a biological puzzle. How can it be that a, a food that is so specialized in its evolutionary uh, destination uh, can possibly be wholesome for, for an adult? And then when you consider that, that uh, we're told that milk is full of all sorts of unhealthy things, we're told that it's full of saturated fat, for example, Lactose. Many or most people have lactose intolerance, including, by the way, the Maasai. 
and various other factors, you know, that the protein in milk is not a particularly good protein. The, the Nazis used to use it on an industrial scale in the Second World War to make paints and glues and all manner of, of non-consumable substances. It becomes a delicious biological puzzle. How good is milk for you? And how can the Maasai possibly be living on, on baby cattle food their whole lives in health? Because they are uh, wonderfully healthy people. No cardiovascular disease at all. And, and after a long process of investigation, I'll cut right to the chase. This is the conclusion that we came to. Firstly, the Maasai do not really live on, on a diet as exclusively of milk as they claim. It's more a, a point of cultural pride because it has to do with the, the pastoral lifestyle. And um, it's like an identity for them. But when you live with the Maasai for a little while, as I have, you see that it's not really true that they consume so much milk. Secondly, when it boils down to it, the, 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 um, the good things and bad things of milk are exactly the opposite of what most people believe these days. Um, the good thing about milk is essentially the butter fat, the saturated fat, which is excellent food for the human body. It's excellent food for almost everyone and is, is ultimately the key to losing weight because if you eat saturated fat, it's, it's almost impossible for that energy biologically to be deposited as fat in your body. What becomes deposited as fat in the human body is, uh, is glucose derived from either uh, carbohydrates like starch or, or proteins like meat. So eating butter uh, or eating the fat component of milk is, is thoroughly healthy for most people and is, is an extremely effective, extre extremely rapidly effective slimming diet, which is exactly the opposite of the impression you get in the average supermarket where milk is taken out of every, of every dairy product. And, and, and secondly, um, although it's true that lactose is a problem in producing flatulence and, and maldigestion and, and discomfort in the guts, the, the lactose in milk is not the ultimate problem. The ultimate problem in milk is, is that the lactose breaks down into, into a sugar called galactose as well as glucose. And that galactose is, is really poison for the human body. It's, it's essential for the development of the brain of the infant mammal. But in the adult, it's perfectly useless. And so even if you can digest lactose, uh, you're actually in trouble because it produces a, mu a mucus buildup in the body, which results in the aggravation of colds, asthma, and so on. And so, uh, you know, the long and the short of it is that milk is not actually good food. And uh, the Maasai do not have any particular lactose tolerance. They, they're no more lactose tolerant than the average Caucasian. Um, they don't have any physiological specialization for it. They just are like the rest of us in being able to consume a small amount of milk with minimum harm. But if you really want to get the maximum benefit of milk, it's very simple. You take out the butter fat, preferably in the form of butter, and you ditch the rest because the rest really isn't worth consuming unless you are a baby mammal of the species for which the milk was designed. Well, there you go. That was uh, Dr. Antoni Molesky, but certainly busting the myth of Maasai and their milk and all the things that go with it. And you've been listening to the Enviro Show here on SFM. And don't forget, the show is podcast. So if there's anything that's uh, tickled your fancy that you'd like to hear again, check it out on our website, which is www.safm.co.za. Go to podcasts. And in a day or so, or if not, even tomorrow, you'll, there you'll find a podcast of the Enviro Show. And don't forget, if you would like to put your money behind the giant flag, check that site. It's www.giantflag.co.za. If you want to get in touch with us, pop us a mail. But it's enviro at safm.co.za. So a very big thank you to the team. That's Lance Andrews and uh, Kim Winter here in Cape Town. I'm Nancy Richards. And up next, it's, um, it's time for lots of music and a little bit of news with Standing By Stephen Kirker. Hi, Stephen. <laughs>